If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Have you discovered the joys of picking and tasting your own homegrown food, but struggle to deal with gluts? Or simply found your seeds don't germinate? How do the experts get it right? Hello, I'm Lucy, and in today's episode, we hear from Monty Don, the lead presenter of Gardener's World, who became a keen veg grower way back in his teenage years. I caught up with him in peak harvest time at Longmeadow and heard how his veg plot is at the heart of the family's cooking. He shared with me his proven ways to give a steady flow of harvests, but admitted things still go wrong on his plot and that learning from his mistakes, rather than striving for perfection, is key. So I started by asking him, what does he think? is the secret to success in growing our own food? Um, well, I, I, I've spent the last 66 years trying to find out. I, I'm not sure I know. I think um, it's a good question because it's not one I've ever thought of. I don't think there is a secret. I think that that you just... If there is a secret to um, productive and efficient vegetable growing which takes the romance out of it, but there is quite a lot of, of practical efficiency involved. It's, it's doing it little and often. It's, in other words, you have to rid yourself of this idea of seasonal harvests and just think that what, what are we going to do today and what's in the garden today? Um, and 
in order to do that, because things take from between six weeks, maybe say four to six weeks for radish and a minimum of 10 months for purple sprouting broccoli, you have to plan ahead. So I would say the first, the absolute secret is A, plan your whole year ahead and B, do something about it every day. It doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, I, I think that the the hard thing for people who are very busy and don't have time to garden or go to their allotment during the week, they go and do a splurge at weekends. And whilst that's that's fine and it works very well, it's it's not really the answer. If you visit any allotment on a weekday, you'll have all the old boys down there. And they're there most days because they know that's that's the way to do it. Yes, a little tickle of the soil and a little little action here and there. Yeah, I just yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's you know, a little bit of weed never get leads get on hand. I mean, if you have to solve a weed problem, the problem is actually you didn't weed enough. You know, it's 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 not the weeds are the problem; is you are the problem. Uh, you've you've mismanaged your, how how you've tackled your weeds. Um, I mean, I remember being told years ago, many 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 years ago, that that. If you needed to hoe, you weren't hoeing enough. So, so a, a light hoe through just a big, just seeing a few weeds there—that's what keeps them down all the time. And then it's not an issue; it's not a problem. It doesn't take very long. You know, ten minutes hoeing done yeah, the whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think also uh, what we do is every time we plant a quick crop out, and that would include lettuce, it would include rocket, all the leafy crops, really. Um, the same day or, or within a day or two, we sow the next batch. So that is, that's very easy to remember that. You know, you, you, you just keep that cycle going continually right through to the last time we sow any leafy crops is probably September, mm-hmm. early September. After that, it's not worth it. You might as well wait till January or February. But uh, so really from from early February right through to mid-September. It's an absolute continuous cycle. And that's really the essence of what's known as succession planting, isn't it? Tell yeah, us it about is. that. I mean, it's, well, there, there are two aspects to succession planting. The first is, we've, and we all, I have to say that I am a walking, living example of how not <laughs> to do this because it happens a lot, is to try and avoid a glut. And, and a glut, by definition, is more food than you can eat. And, you know, you, your family, your friends, your chickens, your, your... And inevitably, absolutely inevitably, it ends up on the compost heap, which is, personally, I don't think is a disaster. It's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a fifth of a packet of seeds ends up on the compost heap. But so you want to try and avoid that. And so the idea is, is that you grow little and often. And, and let's, let's stick with lettuce because it's, it's, it's the, the sort of most common example if you have a packet of, of lettuce seeds of, of a common variety, like, say, Little Gem, you might have 200 seeds in that packet. And if half of them germinate and grow, you've got 100 lettuce. But you've sown them on the same day. So there's every reason to suppose that they will grow and sort of come to fruition at exactly the same time. Now, there aren't many households that need 100 lettuce on the same day. <laughs> you know, so so that straight away, the maths don't, don't make any sense. Now, it's, it's never quite as, uh, as simple as that because some you harvest when they're younger than others and some, you know, you, you go on and some lettuce actually don't taste bad as they start to, to bolt. Others go very bitter 
and, and are really not good at all. And you learn through experience about that. Um, so first of all, don't sew, very, very rarely do you sew a whole packet of lettuce. Divide, you know, sew some, fold over the top, put the date, I write the date on the packet when I sewed it, and then sew another batch, say, in two or three weeks' time. The other, But to make life more complicated is you have to understand how seeds work in relationship to light as much as anything else. So a seed you sow in February will take twice as long to germinate and the seedling to grow as a seed you sow in May. And so therefore you're, you're staggering. You need to build in that time factor uh, and allow for it. So, so once you get to, to May, June, uh, you can turn things around much quicker. And, and, and the whole thing. But earlier in the year, you have this time lag when you have an awful lot of seedlings that are not yet big enough to plant out. Or if you sow them direct, the weather turns horrible and it gets frosty or, or, or icy. I mean, this year in April, mm. you know, we had 20 days below freezing here at Longmeadow. And nothing grew. Nothing grew at all. So you have to work with the weather. You have to factor that in. So it's a little bit of a three-dimensional puzzle. You've got weather, you've got time, and you've got the growth behavior of the plant. The second thing is, and I realise I'm making this sound very complicated. It's not. You just bung some seeds in and see what happens. But it's great to spell it out because actually, you know, yes, uh, we're getting it really back to basics, but that's good. That's good because I think it's, you know, I think so many of us think about veg growing as a summer activity. And this is is the whole purpose of this podcast. No, it it shouldn't be and and needn't be. No, no, no. The busiest time in our vegetable garden, well, is probably February, March. And I start sowing vegetables uh, usually around about Boxing Day, certainly the 1st of January. I will sow chilies, I'll sow tomatoes, I'll sow rocket, I'll sow uh, lettuce like winter, winter, we can't speak, winter density, um, uh, sort of quatre saison. These are hardy lettuce that, that grow best in cold weather. So they will, they will germinate uh, slowly. They'll grow very slowly, but they'll be ready to plant out in March if the weather is kind. And I don't know if it's going to be, you know, but but then we'll use cloches and we'll use fleece. And so we'll, we'll, we'll try and work with that. But mentioning these different varieties is the other factor in the equation, is different varieties will behave differently, both in their response to conditions and also in how you harvest them and how they grow. So a good example is a... Uh, I mentioned little gem, which is a cos lettuce or a main lettuce. Very small, very delicious. Uh, it is much hardier than other cos varieties like Lobjoy's cos or Paris Island, for example. Uh, I would never sow Paris Island lettuce or Lobjoy's lettuce before April because they just don't like that extreme cold weather and, and the cold can cause them to bolt just as much as heat. Uh, vegetables bolt, and by the way, that for those that aren't familiar with it, bolting is when it puts its energy into producing seed and what flower first, then seed, rather than than either leaves or um, the crop that you want. I mean, in the case of root crops, it'll be a nice fat root. So if a if a beetroot or a turnip bolts, you'll have a very small beetroot or turnip and a nice big flower head, which is not what you want. So stress is always the major indicator of that now some vegetables react very directly to stress so if it's if it's hot for two or three days in a row lettuce will start to bolt some vegetables are much more tricky so leeks for example might take six weeks or more to react to stress 
So they'll start to bolt. And you think, why? You know, it's mild, it's watering, they're not dry, it's not too hot. But two months ago, they either were planted out too late, so they were their roots were stressed, or there was a period of drought or extreme cold, and, and that triggers a reaction much later on. And you only learn that by experience. I mean, that you come to that. But you can manage these situations by, by timing when you plant out, by choosing your varieties. As I say, some varieties are much hardier than others. Winter lettuce, for example, Tom Thumb, a very good little winter lettuce, tends to be the smaller the lettuce, the, the better, more adaptable it is. Uh, and then there are, there are you know, spinach, uh, chard is very, it doesn't bolt very so much in dry weather. It, it, it's good. Um, the Japanese uh, leaf, and I'm concentrating on leaf crops here just as an example. It applies to lots of other things too. Um, Mitsuna, Mibuna, these are all crops that, that are, are much tougher, but uh, and, and we grow those in winter. And also the, the type of lettuce. So, for example, a cos has a heart or, or, or a, a crisp head has a heart. And that's what you want before you harvest it. Whereas a loose leaf lettuce, like oak leaf or, um, or, or salad bowl, and you can get red salad bowl or green salad bowl, they just produce loose leaves. And you can either harvest some leaves at a time or you can cut the whole head off and take it actually at any stage. I mean, literally when it's an inch big, if, if that's your thing, or if, it, if, if let it grow almost to the point of bolting. And the beauty of that is they will then regrow and you can get a second cut. So if you don't have time to check every day or you don't can't water or any of these things, a loose-leaf lettuce is going to help that continuity as well as being very delicious. So there are all these different factors that you have to, to work in with your soil, uh, your work pattern. You know, it's all very, very well me saying doing it every day, but if, if you go to work in the dark and come home in the dark and you can only get your allotment you know, for a couple of hours at weekends, that shouldn't disbar you from growing lettuce, but you you can work with it. Um, and also, critically, the timing of sowing, of pricking out, of planting. Now, I'm speaking as though it's a, it's a given thing that you don't sow direct, um, but that's another that's another whole issue. Why, why yes, do well, that. we can come on to that. But um, I, I mean, I think the big takeaway from all of this is is how critical timings are. Timings are absolutely it's absolutely critical. the. It, how do you? How did you start out? Clearly, it's it's intuitive for you now. You just know. <laughs> you know the day. You know the yeah. month. You know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Starting yeah. out though, was it keeping a calendar? Was it you know? Uh, how do you keep track? Of well, something? I started very young. Mm. I started very young. So, and I, and I was really interested in vegetable growing. Um, well, I started doing it when I was a child, but I got really interested in it when I got to about 16, 17. And my brother um, was also really interested. So there were two of us. And, and we we sort of swapped notes and, and, and worked out. And he still is. He's still very good. Uh, I had another brother who was more interested in the floral side of things, and he's very good too. So there, as a family, as a three very competitive brothers, well, you know, gardening was one of the areas where we tried to outdo each other and, and talked about it. I didn't know anyone else who gardened. So in the family, it was something we did. Um, so what I'm saying is I've had 50 years of daily doing this. You know, it's that 10,000 hours thing. Um, and I made loads of mistakes on the way. You learn from your mistakes. The second thing is, is I absolutely devoured gardening books. 
Um, there's a book, and I think you've heard me talk about this before, called The Vegetable Garden Display, which was produced initially in the war as part of the Dig for Victory campaign. Then, the, And the RHS produced it. And then they did another edition in the 50s. And, and, and it's, I think it's in its sort of 20th, yeah, 30th edition around. or whatever it is now. But but I, I can't tell you how I poured over that. Every detail. I mean, I knew it all off by heart. So there was an element of study... Um, but it didn't feel like study. It just felt fascinating to me. And an element of, of just doing it again and again and again and again and then again and again and again and again until it became grained and grooved into me. We were, funnily enough, we were filming yesterday in the garden. We were talking about sort of how you know mm. when things happen. And I said, well, I can, one of the things I, I found myself doing the other day was I was lifting plants out of plugs to see if they were ready to move on. And I was making decisions. And I had absolutely no idea why or how I was making those decisions. In other words, they were completely subconscious or intuitive. Um, I probably could deconstruct it. You know, I was looking at the ratio of root growth to soil to, to how the top was looking, you know, all these different factors. But there comes a point when you stop thinking and just react to what's there in front of you. Um, and, and that's actually when you start gardening. If you have to, if you have to think about what you're doing... It stops you doing the thing that you're doing, um, but I think that 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 actually is, that learning process is part of the pleasure. I mean that that is an active pleasure. It and I th- one of my great campaigns at the moment, and I feel very strongly about this, is we've got to all of us demystify gardening. We've got to stop it feeling like homework or exams or, or or a series of things that you need to learn in order to be accepted into the gardening community at any level. And that's that's because the crucial thing about that, other than the fact that it's inhibiting, and, and is that it's actually not very good gardening because that's not how you do it. What, what's good gardening is when you start to respond to what's in front of you. Not what someone else tells you should happen or whatever, when you actually start making those decisions. And I think the, perhaps the best comparison is as a cook. If you have your recipe book and you follow it to the letter, you'll probably produce something good. But you won't be a good cook until you taste something and just know it needs a bit more salt or a bit more sugar. Or, or yeah, that's ready. Or, you know, I mean... To, to bring that down to something that everybody can experience, if you are cooking eggs in any shape or form, we all know they go on cooking from the pan to the plate and even on the plate. Whereas if you take it out when it's actually perfect to eat, by the time it gets eaten, it will have gone too far. That's you, those sort of things you apply to gardening the whole time. And that's good gardening. And, and only you can, can make that happen. And so if you've not got that intuitive knowledge yet, then there's plenty of places to yeah. look, aren't there? I mean, plenty of places to sort of look, look maybe create a calendar uh, and, and, and follow um, some of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I used to, for example, always do a plan mm. of the vegetable garden uh, round about November, Christmas time. And I would plan out what I was going to grow in each bed and the rotation, and I'd follow that plan. I actually don't do that anymore because I think, I think rotation is not as important as I used to think. You know, or at least I think it's more flexible. Okay. You know, I, I, and I think that um, you end up rigidly following your plan rather than following what's actually happening. You know, come June, the plan you drew up in December will have changed inevitably. So, so I think there's there something to be said for, um, 
uh, building in that flexibility. But I did do that for many, many years. Um, I think it's a very good idea to keep a seed diary. Buy, you know, don't have, don't do it on your phone or anything like that. Buy a cheap day-to-day diary with a with you know a day to each page or half a day. And every time you sow some seeds, write down what you sowed, what variety, uh, and then every time you prick stuff out, plant it out and harvest. And I used to do that for many years. Um, uh, and it becomes a gardening diary essentially, but but. It's very useful because you can look back and say, you know, why, why are my carrots doing? And you look back and say, oh, I see a couple of years ago, I didn't sow them on March the 25th. I waited till April the 16th and they did really well. Maybe it was because I sowed them three weeks later. And you, you know, it may not be the case, but but it may be. And, and that sort of thing is helpful. Um, as I said earlier, when I sow something like lettuce or, or beetroot, which I will have succession, I always write the date on the seed packet, that the half-used seed packet. I write the date that I did the previous sowing. And some seed packets will have three or four dates on them. Every time you label anything, put the date on it that you sowed it. Uh, that's really important. Now, we don't do that on Gardener's World because transmission goes out at okay, a different so time. So it gets confusing. And it's confusing. It gets why, confusing. Why do you but, normally do it in your own plot? Why? So you remember. Mm-hmm. So you know. So when you... Uh, so that uh, it, it's all it's all data. It's all information. You're building in knowledge that you can use and it goes into your memory bank. Um, and I think that... In, so really what I'm saying is you accumulate your own experience as data, rather than going to a website or going to a book that tells you what should happen, you find out and you record it and then you tell yourself. And that's the most powerful way of learning. I have to say, on the other hand, I mean, you can look behind me. I I devour and have read over the years thousands of gardening books. So I'm, I'm not a good person to speak because, you know, I, I, but then I'm an autodidact. I like learning, you know, so, so, but I know for a lot of people it's confusing. It's, it's a model. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think, as you say, observation is such a key thing here. And, you know, you've got, yeah. everyone's got to start somewhere and actually recording yeah. and writing things down uh, and following websites and, and your books and the magazine and so on. It's a start point, and then you build your own level of learning on top, don't you? So, you know, clearly... Yeah, and I think, but I think you can be advised on certain things. So, for example, whenever I see people when they initially start to grow vegetables, and sometimes it's in a pot or, a, you know, wind, on a, a window box or whatever, the most common mistake is they sow too thickly. And that, it doesn't matter what it is, they will, they will either plant or sow too close together. Um, and they will be very pleased because a rash of seedlings appears, and they'll think, hurrah, you know, this is going really well. Uh, and in fact, it's going really badly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, you know, it's to get across to people that, that it is just as important to have a healthy carrot as it is to have a healthy rose or a healthy dahlia. Uh, and that if you look after the health of a plant, then you will have healthy, tasty, good food. And, and you should... You should consider your vegetables and your fruit and your herbs as plants. And it's not till you harvest them that they become food. Uh, so that look after them. And, and, you know, you wouldn't expect to sow cosmos and have 50 seedlings in an area the size of a, of a teacup or a saucer. So why on earth do you think parsley or lettuce would be just as happy? So that's a very, very simple rule. And you just need to know that. 
just need to know it and act on it. And therefore, you either need to learn to thin, and what does that mean, and how much, and when do I thin, and how do I do it, you know, and you can learn that. Um, as Also, how can I avoid it happening, which is one of the reasons why we sow, wherever possible, we sow in seed trays or plugs. Because from the minute you're, you're, you go, you start pricking out, you're dealing with individual plants rather than a line of seedlings or, or you know, Yes, and you said earlier like that. that you rarely sow directly into the soil. So, I mean, yeah. that feels like a yeah. good point to sort of touch exactly why you why you would avoid doing well, that. Well, there are two reasons. There are two reasons. Um, one, because I used to. Mm. I mean, I was brought up, we did that all the time. We never, we hardly ever grew anything in seed trays. And, of course, seed trays, when I was learning, mm. were wooden. And the compost was homemade. You know, there were no, there were no garden centres to speak of, and you couldn't buy garden compost. That came in sort of in my twenties. Um, so it's quite a, it was quite a thing to use seed trays, and, and it tended to be for for decorative plants rather than vegetables. Uh, once, you, if you sow in in drills, you are bound to sow too, at least unevenly, and almost certainly too thickly. So you're going to have to thin. And you, once you thin, you pull the roots out and they can't be transplanted. 99% of them, you, you can't, they won't take to transplanting. Although, if you want a really refined sort of advanced class, uh, what you can do, and I used to do with lettuce, is by transplanting thinnings, they reacted really badly and grew slowly. And it was a form of succession. <laughs> so that the ones that, that weren't thinned harvested 10 days earlier than the ones that were Ooh. thinned. Because they had to recover. So a little bit of deliberate but, stressing. But, yes, yeah, but but that's 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 not beginner stuff. You know, that, that you because it's it's a dangerous game because you can lose them. Um, but in by and large, you waste seed. You have to thin, and probably two or three times you have to thin. And uh, also, they are very very prone to being attacked by slugs, in particular, slugs that live in the soil. That you have these fresh young seedlings coming up. Nothing a slug likes better. And very often, you can, in the morning before you go to work, you can see your line of seedlings appear and you think, great, you come home and it's gone. Or the other way around. Overnight is actually more likely to be. So I started to sow anything I could in seed trays or plugs um, about 25 years ago. I, I, I got into that. And, and that does two things. One, we focus all our attention on individual seedlings. From, from as early as possible. so And we're looking at the health of the plant and how we can make that particular seedling really healthy. And two, uh, the greenhouse and the cold frames, as far as possible, are slug and snail-free zones. Because we check. Check daily. You know, just have a look. And, you know, they do get in and they do eat things, but much, much less than elsewhere. And what I've learned over the years is that slugs and snails will always attack stressed plants first always so once they're healthy and growing strongly and you plant them out there is much less chance of them being attacked uh, and for instance last night I, I harvested a couple of lettuce for supper and one of them had uh, seven young slugs on it delicious when I washed it <laughs> yeah you wash them out in other words but there was no evidence of slug damage so, so it's not to say there aren't slugs around. We have slugs in this garden like everybody else does, but they don't do that much damage unless the plant gets stressed, in which case, like everybody else, mm -hmm. they do. Um, so it's partly 
to 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 really focus our to be economic with seed, economic with time and seedlings, and to from as early as possible make sure. And I mean, I could talk more about the relation, the root relationship to soil bacteria and that sort of thing, which I think is really important and matters. Um, and of course, if you're so direct, you have that from day one. Um, but you get a healthy plant, slug and free. So when you plant it out, it's ready to fend for itself. And once we plant out, we water everything in. That's it. We don't feed, we don't water, we just let them get on mm. with it. So very simple techniques, but focus on the individual plant. So, yeah. Well, there are two yeah. things earlier you said. I think I think there are, there, there are two real keys. And if you like, it goes back to your original question of secrets of growing good vegetables. One is attention to detail. Right down to the individual seedling. Uh, to your mix of composts, to what container you're using, uh, to how you handle it. And two, timing. Timing is everything. Uh, and I would say in a very generalized way that for every action you do with, with, with anything you sow, you have a 10-day window. Uh, and that could be for sowing, it could be for pricking out, it could be for potting on, it could be for planting out, it could be for harvesting. Uh, but if you miss that 10-day window, things will start to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, now thinking timing, let's talk about you know, we're coming off the back of, you know, a summer. We're in the middle of, of um, mm. you know, summer gluts, maybe, summer harvest, certainly. Mm. Tell us about the, what you think are the harder uh, times of year to make sure you've got crops coming. What are those gaps that we should be looking to avoid and how do we avoid them? Well, the, the, the most obvious one is, um, well, I, I don't know, it depends what you want to eat. Uh, funnily enough, winter is, is not the hardest time of all because... Uh, it's quite easy to sow and plant for winter, which you tend to do in summer. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, there are some crops like purple sprouting broccoli, which I'm very fond of, which you sow in March and don't harvest till the following February if you're lucky and could be March and April. Um, so you do need to be well ahead for that. But, but at this time of year, for example, uh, you've got plenty of time to sow all kinds of crops that will sit through winter and, and take you into early spring. The, the hardest time of year to, to have any decent crop is, you know, what, what was always known as the hungry gap, which was, depending on the season and where you live, April, May, and even June. Uh, because your winter crops have all finished. And by winter crops, I'm talking about the brassicas, cabbages, cauliflowers, Brussels sprouts. Um, you have chard, which sits very well over winter. Uh, the root crops, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beetroot. Um, but it's the soil is usually too cold to have summer crops to grow well. You're certainly not going to have any peas and, and unlikely to have broad beans. Um, if you choose your lettuce variety carefully and protect them, you can have a few lettuce, but not many. Uh, so it's surprisingly late. Everybody thinks spring is when vegetables happen. They don't. If you visit any allotment or any vegetable garden, it will be emptiest late April, early mm. May. That's the hardest time because it's too... Anything you sow in January and February won't be ready. And anything that you have sown the previous August, September will be over. And it's worth mentioning that the reason why we don't sow in October, say, or November, is because there isn't enough light. It's nothing to do with heat. You can create heat. It's about light. Plants are much more sensitive to light than people give them credit for. 
It makes a huge difference, uh, particularly in early spring when you get to March. The light levels rise dramatically compared to November, October, November, December, January, even February. Uh, and so that there's no point. And, and actually what I often do is I will sow uh, leafy things uh, in maybe early September. They will germinate and grow into October and then stop. Stop dead in their tracks. And they're too small to be harvestable or even to bother to plant out. I keep them in cold frames and I look after them over winter and they do nothing at all. All I do is they, they almost hibernate. And then I plant them out in February, very often in a greenhouse or in a cold frame or, or with protection. And then they start to grow again. So it, it's almost as though they, as I say, they go into hibernation, uh, rather like a biennial. And, uh, but because they've, they've got a root system, and they've got a certain size, they grow much faster than seed that I've sown in January. So that's going to pull forward your harvesting time just by, by yeah, doing that sowing, I'm, yes, in, in sort of September, October yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm thinking of uh, what we can have. I mean, I have to say that, that in winter, we use the greenhouse as a very important part of our vegetable plot. Uh, and and what we've always done, and with our new greenhouse we started last year and we'll, we'll do, is when the tomatoes come out, which for us is quite early, We really the end of September, we, we sort of cut our losses with tomatoes and we don't try and squeeze out the last bit. We then fill those beds with salad crops. You don't want them to be too big because you, you, you want them to go in quite small because otherwise they're going to be over before... Uh, yeah, and because, don't forget, your outside crops are still going to keep going well into October. So I'm not looking to harvest anything in the greenhouse before November. Um, and you, you plant them out early October. And those will keep us going right through to March. And I will then, in January, have another sowing for the greenhouse, which I will plant in March, which will keep us going through into May. And then they come out and the tomatoes go in. And that's because of what I was saying, the hungry gap is, is outside in May, April, May. I've got practically nothing, certainly nothing fresh. You know, you, you, that's what you crave at that time of year. Now, that's why people eat nettle tips and things, is because you want that fresh greenness that, that is exploding all around you in the flower garden, but actually not in the vegetable garden. And in garden. the vegetable garden at that point, what will you be cropping? Come sort of outside, come, in, you know, fe uh, March, April. What, what, you're, you're still well, at the tail uh, end of things like kale? Yeah, kale, uh, cavallo nero. Um, as I say, the, 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 by far the best crop is, is purple sprouting broccoli, um, cabbages, um, chard, maybe some spinach. Spinach is pretty hardy. Um, we still are digging parsnips. Carrots don't tend not to last through then. We will have lifted potatoes and stored them, they'll still be coming through. Uh, but I'd say without the greenhouse, it would be very limited. Uh, I mean, I like to eat a salad every day of the year. Absolutely. And I make a point of it. You know, it, it's so I try and organize things so that happens. Um, sometimes it's, it's a bit thin, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, I, I, I would regard, I would want a salad on Christmas Day just as much as I would in June. And again, tonight. that's because the variety choices you've chosen are going to take you yeah. through that year. And and, and yeah. your Christmas uh, Day salad will be quite different to the one that you'd have on your birthday. 
Absolutely. That's the key thing, is that, that um, different times of year, different plants do well. I'll tell you the other plant I haven't mentioned that we do eat a lot in, in winter are chicories of various sorts. Uh, radicchio. Uh, I mean, there are lots of different types of chicories and they're, they're not just ridiculous. The, the one type of chicory that I don't grow nowadays is Whitlew chicory, simply because it's such a fat. The forcing type. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just sort of feel, um, uh, I'll let someone else do that and I'll buy those. But um, I mean, I, I now don't grow anything just for the sake of growing it. In other words, we only grow what we want to eat. Um, and I know, and I fully respect some gardeners get most of their pleasure from the process of growing something and the eating is a sort of byproduct um and i understand that and i've done that a lot myself but but i don't do that anymore it's it's what we grow is really geared towards the kitchen and therefore that 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 limits what we grow and also means that we grow some things that other people would regard as slightly odd or eccentric or unusual yeah, I mean, the winter crops are, are so delicious and, and something that, you know, obviously yeah. as we move sort of through into autumn, winter, the, the, the nature of what we're eating changes, the flavours, I think, change. What, what, what do you look forward and to? I think, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Uh, I think what you're looking forward to is, is, is you know, to use clichés, it's heartier food, it's heavier food. Uh, I remember interviewing a, a grower in the Savannes in France and they had a wonderful vegetable garden. And I was asking him the question you just asked me, you know, what do you grow? And he said, well, well in, in summer, we're practically vegetarian and we just eat lots of fresh vegetables and fruit straight from the garden and it's wonderful. And in winter, we like food that sticks to our bones. You know, we, we, it's cold here and we, were, and, and we eat much more meat. We eat soups, we eat lots of potatoes, um, you know, and, and I'm with that really. It's, it's I... You know, I really like eating pumpkins and squashes. We, the other thing we do is we um, store certain harvests and we grow them for storage, which is why we grow so many tomatoes, for example. I mean, at the moment, we're eating fresh tomatoes, and but the vast majority of our tomatoes we process and make sauce out of them and then eat them through winter uh, as a sauce mainly with pasta, but also with other things too. You know, it's just a base sauce. That, that, and, and our winter tomato sauce is oily and heavy and gloopy and lots of herbs in it. Our summer tomato sauce is very light and fresh, made with fresh tomatoes, um, almost. Basically, you're just chopping up tomatoes and heating them, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's it. Um, so very the same vegetable, but very, very different, the way you eat them. And that's where... I would say anybody who's at all keen on growing vegetables should have a deep freeze. A freezer changes everything. Um, when I was a child, there were no freezers, at least not domestic ones. So we ate seasonally. And what it meant was, is you ate your way through a glut because that's all there was. You know, you had cabbage every day. You had broad beans, so they were the size of your fist, practically. And they were, you know, they were floury. And therefore, you had to have it with white sauce to make it palatable. So you associated broad beans with this gloopy white sauce. Nowadays, I don't suppose anybody eats broad beans with a white sauce. You eat them young and small and fresh. And if you um, have a glut, you're freezing them. They freeze really easily, don't they? We, they freeze very easily. We grow a lot of basil, for example. And the vast majority of it, we harvest to make pesto. And that freezes very well. And so what you get in winter is that freshness, that lovely sort of aromatic taste that you associate with summer. 
You have. Um, we make sauces, uh, we, we grow a lot of parsley. We make sauces from parsley. To me, parsley is actually a winter mm. herb. Oh, we grow it like a vegetable um, and, and we use it a lot. Um, and I associate that with winter, not summer. Um, we, but we try not to have a lot of anything in winter, rather have a, a bit of things. Whereas in summer, we grow a lot of things in order to store. We don't store any winter harvest. We eat, eat it fresh. Mm-hmm. And probably you're surviving through as well on pumpkins till when? So Yeah, we, I mean, I, I have to say we're not self-sufficient. So, so that I don't want to give the impression that, that we are a shiny example of self-sufficiency. Um, we supplement our lack uh, by buying them. And that lack can be for a number of reasons. It can be because we never got around to doing it. I mean, well, you know, like everybody, I've just said how we're rather late on chicory this year. So we won't have a good chicory harvest in the autumn. It's too late. Um, it could be because the crop failed for some reason, the weather, depredations, rabbits, pigeons, you know. Um, it could be because... Um, we just grew it badly. We just got it wrong. You know, sometimes you do. Some, I mean, I remember many, many years ago, I, I, I started to write a book, which has never been published, about head gardeners. And I went around the country interviewing head gardeners. And I'm talking about 40 years ago, this was. So that, and the whole point was, in 1980, there were still head gardeners in their 80s who had trained before the First World War. And they were they, they were very very old school, and I just thought they were fascinating. And and um, they all said the same thing to me uh, in different forms: is you don't know how to grow anything until you find out you can't grow it. So in other words, you do the same thing. You, you, you so let, let's let's stick with with carrot seed. You sow your carrot seed, you get a crop of carrots. Fine. You do the same thing next year. You get a crop of carrots. Yeah, I know how to do this. You do the same thing the third year. You get a crop of carrots. This is easy. You do exactly the same thing on the fourth year, and it doesn't. Then you have to start finding out why it didn't. What's going on? Up to that point, you haven't thought at all. You've just done it. It's not till you have to deal with failure and work out what's going on that you start to learn about it and actually interact with it. Um, And that... Almost the worst thing that can happen to you as a professional gardener is easy success because you're not learning anything. Um, and because you're, it's your job and it's your lifetime and you're committed, it's not a disaster if something fails. Okay, what went wrong? Next year we'll try something different. And maybe that won't work either. And we'll go on trying and we'll go on and we'll go on until we crack it. And you'll talk to people and we'll, we'll, we'll basically be humble about it and accept I don't know how to do this. So even though I thought I did, and it was really interesting because they all said that in different forms. Um, and, I th- and I think it's a very good lesson. Is Therefore, I would say to anyone tr- starting out, don't try and perfect it. Give it a go. But pay attention to what you're doing and the results and learn from it. And everybody makes mistakes, but only an idiot makes the same mistake twice. And the same applies to growing vegetables. Gosh, great advice. So listen, we'll, we'll, we'll end because we're coming into autumn. So let, let's let's talk about autumn as yeah. that kind of key time in, in right. veg growing. You know, what, what's the key to um, success in a veg patch in autumn? What sort of things are, are, should we be doing as we go into autumn? Well, the first thing I'd say, the key to success in veg patch in autumn is planning ahead in spring. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, it, it's getting late. 
it's getting late to get a decent autumn crop because everybody thinks the peak of the vegetable year is sort of summer. It's not. The peak of the vegetable year is September, even early October with climate change. What I would say to that is, is all the um, tender crops do very well in autumn. October is often quite a mild month and the vegetable garden can stay very productive well into October and sometimes even November. So whereas 50 years ago, when I was learning my vegetable growing trade, if you didn't have hard frost in September, you considered yourself lucky. You know, it was almost axiomatic that by the end of September, you would have had one or two real icy bites, and, and that was the end of a lot of your harvest. If you want an autumn crop of any kind at all, ideally the end of July, beginning of August. Once you get to the second week of August, you're running against the weather and the light. As I said earlier, it's the falling light is your enemy more than anything else at all. The other thing is I would invest in some kind of cloches. They make a huge difference, not in the middle of winter, but just when you get a touch of frost or if you get really heavy rain, they protect them. Those, they're as useful for protecting against the rain actually, as actually anything else. Is Even if it's homemade, you know, you just... just hoop some piping. It's the old Jeff Hamilton thing of just get some blue piping and hoop it and, and put some polythene over it. Um, that That's particularly useful in October and November. Uh, and again, in February, March, April. So look, as we're going into autumn, what are the sort of things that we should be yeah. doing to ensure, you know, crops through, well, really, I guess, next spring? Well, I would say that it's worth, particularly if you live in the South, it's worth sowing some lettuce, some rocket. Rocket is, grows very fast and will deal with cold weather. Um, and, and giving it a go. Your problem is not with them surviving, it's of them germinating, getting big enough to harvest in time. Uh, so, but, but do it now. If you're listening to me speak, go away when we finish and do it now. The sooner you do it, the greater the chance of some kind of autumn harvest. Having said that, if it germinates and it's too small to harvest, don't pull it up, leave it there, and it will start to grow again next spring in February as the days get longer. So, so that's certainly worth doing. If you can buy uh, young plants of brassicas, and garden centres do sell them, and nurseries do sell them, so it's worth hunting out, get them, plant them out. Plant them out now. Um, a good tip, I think, for any brassica crop, be it cabbage, cauliflowers are tricky, uh, by all means, try and grow them, but they are more difficult. But but cabbages of all kinds, both winter, like savoy cabbages and, and spring cabbages, loose leaf or, or the sort of hispy cabbage and greyhound, um, space them nice and wide, give them a chance, then intercrop, grow a catch crop in between them. Either uh, now in autumn, you could sow some sow a, a line of, of lettuce or, or rocket, or next spring when they're growing. It's, it's, it's a much more efficient use of space than planting them too close together. Um, I think also that there's no doubt about it that, that anything that isn't mature is not going to mature from scratch now. You just have to accept that your, your light is against you. So I think you, it, it's, it's a good idea to start thinking about next spring. It's not too early. Prepare ground. Dig ground, clear it, weed. And the best way to prepare ground for next spring is if you, if you, if you 
dig and don't want to do a no dig plot, dig out all the perennial weeds and either put a layer of cardboard on top of it and then you can cover that with compost or simply put a layer of compost over the surface of the ground and leave it. And the compost will work in and that will be ready for planting or sowing next spring. Uh, if you're doing no dig, now's a good time to make raised beds. Just make raised beds slowly. Don't do it in a rush. Um, you you don't have to dig them over. I mean, there's plenty of no-dig systems you can do. Uh, and then they will settle over winter and they'll be ready to plant early next spring. So in other words, prepare yourself. Work. Start ordering your seeds before Christmas. Don't wait till the new year. Read catalogues. Read books. Um, and start planning. And if you're a novice, but you've got an allotment or a space, design it. Think how it might look beautiful. You know, what flowers are you going to grow in there with it? Um, sow some sweet peas now to grow in amongst the vegetables. Uh, I always sow uh, broad beans in October. Uh, I don't, increasingly I don't, some I plant out, some I keep in pots to plant out in February. Um, they very, do very well. You can try sowing peas in October, although mice often take them. That is, a, can be a problem, but it's worth a try. And is there any uh, any defence against uh, things like mice and obviously you know as you say outside pigeons coming to maraud? Any anything you can do? Well, pigeons we net mm -hmm. against, and there's nothing much else you can do. Um, so brassica crops in particular, we net from the minute we plant them out, uh, and we we keep them netted all the time. Um, mice, no, I mean people soak seeds in paraffin and things, but uh, I think have healthy predators. You know, encourage owls. Um, I also think that, that we, we get it really wrong in terms of predators. We feel, you know, the mentality that says, I can't do this because the whole world is against me and I'm being attacked from every quarter. And if it, it's not slugs, it's mice. And if it's not mice, it's rats and squirrels. You know, I think, oh, come on, get real. We live in a world that is populated by a trillion other creatures. We share it. Is sort of don't get angry, get clever. Just, just work with things. And as I say, if mice eat your peas, sow your peas in root trainers, keep them under cover, and then plant them out when you've got a healthy young plant. Then the mice won't touch them. Rabbits might. But, <laughs> but that's, you know, another, that's story. another problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, lovely. Well, well, wrapping up really on, on thinking about this, I guess it, it all comes back to the kitchen, doesn't it? Literally. And so what's what's in the Don household recipe for some of those delicious fruits coming into the kitchen? Well, summer pudding, you know, has to has to happen. I mean, one of the problems is Sarah is is a celiac, so can't eat gluten. So she can't eat and, and also summer pudding made with gluten-free bread is it's not the same. It's not good. But summer pudding, which which I think is one of the most delicious things ever devised, it couldn't be more simple. You know, it's just you you get a pudding basin, you line it with bread, cut the crust off, line it with bread, you boil up red currants, black currants. And we add raspberries, but not strawberries, um, until uh, and with some sugar, uh, and so that it's not broken down completely. But it's 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 broken down. You pour that mixture in. Uh, you seal it off the bottom with more bread, uh, and you then leave it upside down, either in a fridge or a cool place for 24 hours. And what happens is the mixture cools, but soaks into the bread completely. It soaks it all up. And the bread should be nice and thick. You can't use sliced bread. You have to have sort of 
good thick bread. Uh, and then you turn it out the next day and it's jelly, the pectin in the fruit slightly gels. So it, it doesn't just wash out, it, it stays solid. And you cut into it. And what you should have is this, this bread which has soaked up all these juices and comes off. And then the mixture, which as I say, is slightly gelled. So it doesn't, it's not too sloppy. And then you add really good quality cream. And it sounds very simple, but it's just divine. It's just wonderful. And the, the, you have, the key element are black currants and red currants. You, you can't... And I think summer pudding with strawberries is a travesty. It's completely, completely a sin against nature. Um, strawberries are delicious, but they're not for summer pudding. Um, but we also, I mean, gooseberries, I love gooseberry fool, I love gooseberry ice cream, I like stew gooseberries, uh, gooseberry tart, gooseberry crumble, can't go wrong with gooseberries. Raspberries, we we tend to just eat fresh because they're just lovely, um, you know, for breakfast just with yogurt or, or whatever, cream. Uh, yesterday, we picked our Morello cherries, didn't have a huge amount, just a small bowl, Sarah, um, Took out the the cores, uh, the the not the stones. pits. What, what's the stones? The mm-hmm. Stones. That's right. Took out the stones, um, simmered them with some sugar, and made a compote, and it's completely delicious, lovely. We do, actually, I'll tell you what, we do that quite a lot, particularly with the berries and uh, black currants, red currants, cherries. Is essentially, if you just stew them so they become half sauce, half sort of stew fruit, and then you can either use that on ice cream or yogurt or, or creme fraiche or whatever it is you want, or you can add to them. It, you get that intensity of taste. It's very, very good. And, and a little goes a long way too. Gosh, it really is the good life. <laughs> well, the thing is we eat what we grow and we like to eat well. Sarah is an incredibly good cook. Um, I like food and I like cooking a little bit. Um, so why wouldn't you? You know, why? What, what's the point in eating anything bad? The other thing is we we never buy ready meals. I've never had a ready meal. I don't think. Um, it's not that's a, that's a not completely untrue. I have fish and chips about once or twice a year, and it's great. I love it. But we never ever buy sort of supermarket meals or anything like that. We always cook from ingredients. So if the ingredients are in your garden, they're fresh and they're available and they're easy. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>